Section two of the Mysteries of London, Volume two. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Lynn Thompson. The Mysteries of London, Volume two, by George W. M. Reynolds. Section two. A public functionary. Urged by that sense of duty to which we have before alluded, and which prompted him to neglect no step that might lead to the discovery of a great criminal's lurking-place, Richard accompanied the police officer to various houses where the dregs of the population herded together. The inspection of a plague hospital could not have been more appalling. The scrutiny of a lazar house could not have produced deeper disgust. In some, the inmates were engaged in drunken broils, the women enacting the part of furies. In others, the females sang obscene songs, the men joining in the chorus. Here a mother waited until her daughter should return with the wages of prostitution, to purchase the evening meal. There a husband boasted that his wife was enabled, by the liberality of a paramour, to supply him with ample means for his night's debauchery. In one house, which our hero and the constable visited, three sisters of the respective ages of eleven, thirteen, and fourteen were comparing the produce of their evening's avocations, the avocations of the daughters of crime. And then those three children, having portioned out the necessary amount for their suppers and their lodging that night, and their breakfast next morning, laughed joyously, as they perceived how much they had left to purchase gin. For gin is the deity, and intemperance is the handmaiden of both sexes, and nearly all ages in that district of London. What crimes, what follies have been perpetrated for gin? A river of alcohol runs through the land, sweeping away health, honour and happiness with its remorseless tide. The creaking gibbet and the prison ward, the gloomy hulk and the far-off penal aisle, the debtor's jail and the silent penitentiary, the tomb-like workhouse and the loathsome hospital, the galling chain and the spirit-breaking treadwheel, the frightful mad cell and the public dissecting room, the deathbed of despair and the grave of the suicide, are indebted for many, many victims to thee, most potent gin. O gin, the genius of accidents, and the bad angel of offences, worship thee. Thou art the juggernaut beneath whose wheels millions throw themselves in blind adoration. The pawnbroker points to thee and says, Whilst thy dominion lasts, I am sure to thrive. The medical man smiles as he marks thy progress, for he knows that thou leadest a ghastly train, apoplexy, palsy, dropsy, delirium tremens, consumption, madness. The undertaker chuckles when he remembers thine influence, for he says within himself, Thou art the angel of death. And Satan rejoices in his kingdom, well knowing how thickly it can be populated by thee. Yes, great is thy power, O Jinn. Thou keepest pace with the progress of civilization, and thou art made the companion of the Bible. And when the missionary takes the word of God to the savage in some far distant clime, 
he bears the fire-water with him at the same time while his right hand points to the paths of peace and salvation his left scatters the seeds of misery disease death and damnation yes great is thy power o jinn a terrible instrument of evil art thou thou sweepest over the world with the wing of the pestilence thy breath that of a plague like the poisonous garment of degenera on the burning limbs of the centaur dost thou cling around thy victims and where the graveyard is heaped up with mouldering bones and where disease and death prevail in all their most hideous shapes and where misery is most keenly felt and poverty is most pinching and where the wails of hapless children ascend to heaven in vain appeal against the cruelty of inhuman parents and where crime is most diabolical there are thy triumphs there are thy victories but to continue the clock of st giles's church proclaimed the hour of midnight and though our hero and the constable had visited many of the low dens and lodging-houses in the holy land still their search was without success unless my mates have been more lucky than us observed the policeman halting at the corner of a street we must conclude that the bird is flown and even if they should chance to enter a house where the miscreant has taken refuge how would they be enabled to recognize him asked richard one of them knows him well replied the constable at that moment a violent scream issued from the upper part of the house close to which markham and the constable were standing the dwelling was high narrow and if possible more gloomy when viewed by the feeble rays of a watery moon than the neighbouring houses from the uppermost window streamed a strong light which danced upon the black wall of the building opposite making the sombre appearance of the locality the more sinister as it was the more visible that scream which expressed both horror and agony caused markham to start with momentary consternation the constable did not however appear surprised but merely observed with a strange coolness ah there's smithers at his old tricks again and who is smithers inquired richard but before the constable could reply to the question the window whence the light emanated was thrown up with crashing violence and a female voice shrieked for assistance had we not better ascertain what is the matter here exclaimed markham hastily i dare not force an entry unless there is a cry of murder answered the officer scarcely were these words uttered when the sound of a heavy blow like that of a thong or leathern strap upon a person's back echoed along the street and then terrific shrieks mingled with cries of murder issued from the open window in another instant the female was dragged away from the casement by someone in the room where this scene occurred then the blows were resumed with frightful severity and the screams and cries continued in a more appalling manner than at first immediately afterwards and just as the constable was preparing to force an entry someone was heard to rush precipitately down the stairs inside the house the door opened and a strange-looking being darted madly into the street now gibbet cried the policeman catching the humpbacked lad for such markham perceived him to be by the collar what's all this about "'Oh, you are an officer!' exclaimed the humpback, in a tone of surprise and delight. "'For God's sake, come up! Father's murdering Kate!' 
the screams and the sounds of the blows still continuing upstairs, the constable did not hesitate to comply with the request of the deformed lad, whom he had saluted by the singular name of Gibbet, and Markham hastened after him, anxious to render any assistance that might be required at his hands. The policeman and our hero hurried up the narrow stairs, lighted by the officer's bull's-eye, and speedily reached the room whence the screams had emanated. But we must pause for a moment to describe that apartment, and to give the reader some idea of the inmates of the house to which we have introduced him. The room was situated at the top of the house, and bore the appearance of a loft, there being no ceiling to conceal the massive beams and spars which supported the angular roof. From one of the horizontal beams hung a stuffed figure, resembling a human being, and as large as life. It was dressed in a complete suit of male attire, and a white mask gave it the real but ghastly appearance of a dead body. It was suspended by a thick cord or halter, the knot of which being fastened beneath the left ear made the head incline somewhat over the right shoulder, and it was waving gently backwards and forwards, as if it had been recently disturbed. The arms were pinioned behind, and the hands, which were made more or less lifelike by means of dingy white kid gloves, were curled up, as it were, in a last convulsion. In a word, it presented the exact appearance of a man hanging. Markham started back when his eyes first fell on this sinister object, but a second glance convinced him that the figure was only a puppet. This second survey brought to his view other features, calculated to excite his wonder and curiosity in that strange apartment. The figure already described was suspended in such a way that its lower extremity was about a foot from the ground, but it was concealed nearly up to the knees by a small scaffold, or large black box, it having been suffered to fall that much through a trap-door, made like a drop in the platform of that diminutive stage. From this strange spectacle, which in all respects was a perfect representation of an execution, Markham's eyes wandered round the loft. The walls, the rough brickwork of which was smeared over with whitewash, were covered with rude pictures, glaringly coloured and set in common black wooden frames. These pictures were such as are sold in low neighbourhoods, for a few pence each, and representing scenes in the lives of remarkable highwaymen, murderers, and other criminals, who had ended their days upon the scaffold. The progress of Jack Shepherd to the gibbet at Tyburn, the execution of Jonathan Wilde, Turpin's ride to York, Sawney Bean and his family feasting off human flesh in their cave, Hunt and Thurtell throwing the body of Mr. Weir into the pond. Corder murdering Maria Martin at the Red Barn. James Greenacre cutting up the corpse of Hannah Brown. Such were the principal subjects of that gallery of human enormity. But as if these pictorial mementos of crime and violent death were not sufficient to gratify the strange taste of the occupants of that apartment, some hand, which was doubtless the agent of the imagination that loved to sup full of horrors, has scrawled with a burnt stick upon the wall various designs of an equally terrific nature, gibbets of all forms, and criminals in all the different stages of their last minutes in this life, were there represented. 
the ingenuity of the draughtsman had even suggested improvements in the usual modes of execution and had delineated drops halters and other methods of pinioning on new principles everything in that spacious lot savoured of the scaffold oh had the advocates of capital punishment but been enabled to glance upon that scene of horrors they would have experienced a feeling of dire regret that any system which they had supported could have led to such an exhibition but to proceed on a rude board which served as a mantle over the grate was a miniature gibbet about eight inches high and suspended to the horizontal beam of which was a mouse most scientifically hung with a strong piece of pack-thread the large silver watch belonging to the principal inmate of the house was suspended to a horizontal piece of wood with an oblique supporter projecting from the wall above the fireplace in one corner of the room was a bed over which flowed curtains of a coarse yellow material and even these were suspended to a spar arranged and propped up like the arm of a gibbet a table on which the supper things still remained and half a dozen chairs completed the contents of this strange room and now a few words relative to the inmates of that house the hump-backed lad who had rushed down the stairs in the manner already described was about seventeen or eighteen years of age and so hideously ugly that he scarcely seemed to belong to the human species his hair was fiery red and covered with coarse and matted curls a huge head that would not have been unsuitable for the most colossal form his face was one mass of freckles his eyes were of a pinkish hue his eyebrows and lashes were white and his large teeth glittered like dominoes between his thick and bluish lips his arms were long like those of a baboon but his legs were short and he was not more than four feet and a half high in spite of his hideous deformity and almost monstrous ugliness there was an air of good nature about him combined with an evident consciousness of his own repulsive appearance which could not do otherwise than inspire compassion if not interest the moment the policeman who entered the room first made his appearance upon the threshold the young female precipitated herself towards him exclaiming for god's sake protect me but do not do not hurt my uncle this girl was about sixteen years of age and though not beautiful possessed a countenance whose plaintive expression was calculated to inspire deep interest in her behalf she was tall and of a graceful figure her hair was light chestnut her eyes dark blue with a deep melancholy characterizing their bashful glances her teeth were small white and even though clad in humble attire there was something genteel in her appearance something superior to the place and society in which we now find her the man from whose cruel blows she implored protection was of middle height rather stoutly built with a pale countenance and an expression of stern hard-heartedness in his large grey eyes and compressed lips he was dressed in a suit which evidently had never been made for him the blue frock-coat being too long in the sleeves the waistcoat too wide round the waist and the trousers scarcely reaching below the knees for god's sake protect me exclaimed the young girl as above stated but do not do not hurt my uncle 
she added in a tone which proved the sincerity of the prayer. "'Come, come, Master Smithers,' said the constable. "'This won't do. You mustn't alarm the neighbourhood in this manner.' "'Why, then, does she interfere between me and Gibbet?' cried the man brutally, at the same time flourishing a thick leathern thong in his right hand. "'She does it out of good nature, I suppose,' observed the constable. "'Everyone knows how shameful you treat your son, Gibbet, and this poor gal takes her cousin's part.' At these words the humpback cast a timid but affectionate glance towards Catherine, who, on her part, threw a look of profound compassion upon the unfortunate lad. "'She does it out of good nature, does she?' repeated the man. "'Then why won't he learn my business? He never can be fit for any other. But no, the moment I leave him, he is off to the side of Miss there, and she makes him read in her outlandish books, so that he despises his father and the business he must take to sooner or later.' "'But you ought not to beat Miss Catherine, Smithers.' reiterated the policeman the next time i hear the cry of murder in your house i'll walk you off to the station and that's all about it i suppose that i may leather my own son if i choose said the man savagely you ought to remember that he is deformed through your cruelty cried the constable and that his mother died of fright and grief hold your tongue bluebottle interrupted smithers his lips quivering with rage "'It isn't for you to come and make mischief in a family. Get out with you!' "'But if we leave this poor girl to the rage of her uncle,' said Markham to the constable, whom he drew aside and thus addressed in a whisper, "'he will do her some injury.' "'What is to be done with her, sir?' demanded the officer. "'Smithers says she is his niece. "'Is it not certain that she stands in such a degree of relationship towards him?' inquired our hero, whose humane heart was moved in favour of the suffering girl. "'Now, then, what are you chattering about there?' ejaculated Smithers. "'I want to go to bed. Gibbet, you be off to your room, and Kate, you go to yours. This is mine, and I should advise the blue bottle with his spy in plain clothes to make themselves scarce.' "'Remember, I shall report you to our sergeant,' said the policeman, "'and he will tell the division to keep an eye on you.' "'Tell him whatever you like,' returned the old man doggedly. The humpback and Catherine had already left the room in obedience to the command of Smithers. The constable repeated a caution to the ruffian who had ill-used them, and then took his departure, followed by Richard Markham. When they were once more in the street, our hero said to his companion, "'Who is that man?' "'The public executioner,' was the reply." End of section 2